WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is special coverage on WNYC, oral arguments at the Supreme Court on Donald Trump and the insurrection clause of the Constitution. Good morning, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. And yes, we can air a Supreme Court hearing with live audio. Cameras, no, but microphones, yes. And that's exactly what we're going to do with this landmark case. Can Donald Trump be barred from the presidential election because he engaged in an insurrection or gave aid and comfort to insurrectionists. The Colorado Supreme Court, remember, has in fact barred him from the ballot in that state for exactly those reasons. And Trump has appealed to the Supreme Court, and they will hash it out there this morning. Here's the rough schedule of what's about to happen. At around 9.45, we'll hand it off to NPR in Washington with legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg and others. Go, Nina. The oral arguments themselves are expected to start right around 10 o'clock, right around the top of the hour, and last for 80 minutes, one hour and 20 minutes, if they stick to the script. So let's begin to uh, preview this right now, as we're very happy to have with us Emily Bazelon, Yale Law School lecturer and senior research fellow, New York Times Magazine staff writer, Slate Political Gabfest co-host, and the author of two best-selling books, Charged, The Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration, and Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Emily has generously agreed to do this short preview with us. Come back later in the morning if they finish before noon within the regular Brian Lehrer Show and join again tomorrow morning on the Brian Lehrer Show to see how it all looks a day later. So, Emily, thanks in advance for all of that and welcome back to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to listen to all of this with you. And remind us first, is this new or unusual that the Supreme Court allows live audio broadcasts of oral arguments? It's not all that new. They've been doing it for the last several years in cases where there's a lot of public interest. And, you know, it's sort of a compromise. They are famously against cameras in the courtroom, um, probably because they don't want to be recognized in the street. There are also some questions about whether, you know, playing sound bites on cable TV or the evening news would somehow cheapen the proceedings. Um, but audio, they seem to be more amenable to. And so we have had that that in some big cases in the past as well as today. Yeah, nobody's going to recognize Clarence Thomas if they see him walking down the street. Ha ha ha. So <laughs> set the scene for us. Do all nine justices sit up there at the same time since we won't be able to see them and listen to a um, presentation by each side and then fire questions at them? 
Well, they are all there. <laughs> what happens is one lawyer gets up and starts talking and gives a very short presentation, usually before the questions begin. The the questions have become more orderly in the last few years. This was something that started during COVID when the justices were remote. Um, Chief, Jeff, Chief Justice Roberts um, started this new procedure in which they take turns asking questions by order of seniority. He starts and then he goes to the next person in line, um, which I think is Justice Thomas. It used to be much more chaotic where the justices would interrupt each other as well as the lawyers as they peppered their questions. But now there's a kind of order to it um, and everybody gets to have their chance and then there is a second and sometimes a third round. By seniority. Oh, and they they go. They might go more than once. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to read the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and then ask you to go into the weeds of the language a little bit for how the lawyers on each side might argue. All right, here we are. Section 3, disqualification from holding office. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. So that's the language from the Constitution. Nobody uh, obviously taught the framers to uh, write short <laughs> declarative sentences. Um, but Emily, will they be arguing over the definition of what counts as an ex? what counts as an insurrection or as giving aid or comfort to enemies of the United States? Yeah, I mean, that is the most substantive question at issue here. Was January 6th an insurrection? And did former President Trump either participate or give aid or comfort to that insurrection? There are historical examples to look back to. There's all the fact-finding that Congress did in its investigation. Um, and then there are the prosecutions going on of former President Trump, which don't charge him with insurrection directly, but have some fact finding that, you know, the justices can draw on. The Colorado Supreme Court looked at all of this and they said, yes, this does count as engaging in an insurrection. There are ways in which the Supreme Court could look for off ramps that don't involve this very central and obviously very heated question. Um, you know, one thing that's important, I think, to say here is that Trump has not been charged or certainly convicted with insurrection. But for the purposes of the 14th Amendment and whether you can be president again, that's not the standard. It's not a criminal conviction that's an issue. It's a, a separate factual inquiry about whether for purposes of this part of the law, he engaged in insurrection or gave aid and comfort to it. So did the lower court in Colorado, which found that Trump violated the insurrection, insurrection clause at, at 
you know, the standard that you just described. Um, did they hold a real evidentiary hearing with arguments pro and con over whether his actions met that standard? They didn't try the whole case, right? I mean, they didn't have lots of witnesses coming in, but they had arguments from lawyers presenting the underlying facts and drawing on all the investigations and documentation, um, that particularly that Congress has done so far. There was also some dispute about whether Trump, as president at that time, was an officer of the United States, as defined in the Insurrection Clause, as I read it there. I mean, it seems weird to think that the president might not be considered an officer of the United States, but the language in the clause, and I won't read it all again, but it mentions senator and representative specifically, also an elector to the Electoral College uh, and representatives of state government, but not president of all things to leave out. So he would only be included under the language that says or hold any office, civil or military. How do you understand that to apply to a president or what they had in mind? Well, there's just a really interesting question here about how you interpret a text. So one way to think about this is, okay, if you have a list and then you don't put president on that list, could the list include president with this kind of catch-all phrase, hold any office, civil or military? The Another way of thinking about this is like, look, what was going on in the 1860s? Um, what did Congress say it was doing? There doesn't seem to be any evidence that people said, oh, we're deliberately leaving the president off this list. And it seems like a really strange idea that you would have um, a duty not to engage in insurrection by everybody else except the top official in the country. So some of the law professors who have looked at this have said, look, like this is the um, – the rule of not hiding an elephant in a mouse hole. Um, that's an idea about legal interpretation that if they were not going to include the president, they would have made that clear. Interesting. So you don't expect that to be, uh, I mean, I've seen them debate that on cable television. You, it sounds like you don't expect that to be a major source of argument before the justices. It could be, because the thing is, if you're the Supreme Court and here and you're looking for an off-ramp, Right. It's possible that there are justices who think like it is we should not be deciding right now whether Trump engaged in an insurrection or gave aid and comfort to it. Like if we can avoid that question, we should. And so if you're looking for an off ramp and you think like, well, it's convincing that president is not on this list, you could make a big deal out of that. Um, there's another kind of technicality at issue here about the kind of oath that you swear as president. It The oath in the 14th Amendment is um worded slightly differently. Uh, it talks about supporting the Constitution of the United States and the presidential oath talks about defending and protecting. It has slightly different language. Again, it's a technicality. But if the justices are looking for a way here to not reach this central, very heated question, they could uh, make a big deal about one of these technicalities. Here's a question from a listener who wrote in and said they're confused. If Colorado prevails, does that mean Trump is disqualified from every state or just Colorado, and every state will decide for itself whether it thinks Trump violated the insurrection clause? Yeah, that's a great question. And it will depend what the Supreme Court says. I mean, a narrow ruling by the Supreme Court in favor of Colorado would say, okay, Colorado, you don't have to include Trump on the primary ballot for the Republican primary. That's all we're going to decide here. An another way of thinking about this is that the court would also say, 
to all the other states and you all can make up your own minds. You have your own state laws about who qualifies to get onto your ballot and everybody can decide for themselves. And we are not going to set one national standard here. There are certainly arguments in favor of that approach, right? It's federalist. You let the states all decide. They have the power in the Constitution to set the time, place, and manner of election and to decide eligibility rules. And they can interpret Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in the way that they want to do that. But the court could also say no to Colorado and make it clear that no state can take Trump off the ballot. Um, Again, we're in the context of primary elections right now, but one imagines the court wants to give guidance as well for the general election so that they don't have to have another round of this, especially because the clock is ticking. So how quickly do you think the Supreme Court will rule? Because the clock is ticking and we are already in primary election season. And Super Tuesday, with so many states voting uh, on that day, is less than a month away. Right. I mean, certainly they will rule by the end of June when the term ends. I think there is a strong case for ruling more quickly than that, for really treating this um, as an urgent matter because it's so fundamental to the democracy whether – Uh, you know, whether the people who want to kick Trump off the ballot are right, that the Constitution does not allow someone with this record to run, or whether he should be able to be fully a candidate without any kind of shadow of this question of eligibility hanging over him. Those are really urgent questions. You know, if he's ineligible, then that could affect the Republicans' decision about whether to nominate him or not. So time, time is pressing. And time is pressing for us because we've got about 60 seconds left in this segment. Uh, Do you think they're going to stick to a strict clock, 80 minutes, starting at 10 o'clock, and they're going to be done around 20 after 11 or their breaks? How's that going to go? You know, they haven't been sticking to the clock that much lately. There have been arguments that have run over, so I don't have total faith in 80 minutes. But that is one thing we will know the answer to very shortly. I guess so. And so, Emily Bazelon, thank you very much. I will talk to you later this morning if they finish before noon. Otherwise, I'll talk to you tomorrow morning on The Brian Lehrer Show. And thanks again for doing all these hits with us, uh, depending on how the Supreme Court goes. Now we go live to Washington and hand it off to NPR's Scott Detrow, who will anchor the special coverage with NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg and others. We will see how the justices question the lawyer for Trump, the lawyers for the plaintiffs. Can Donald Trump be disqualified from the presidential election in one state or in all states for violating the insurrection clause to the Constitution? This is WNYC.